Okay, well, uh, this morning I made a mention, and because it's today's celebrated as Easter Sunday, uh, I made mention of something that's not long, but uh, religion uh, is religion, and it will always be religion, and religion accomplishes a certain thing in people's lives. Um, as long as religion is alive in somebody, whether it's Catholicism or Mormonism or Buddhism or uh, Islam or whatever, uh, and religion is fed and used and lived, there's going to be divisions and there's going to be judgment and piety and there's going to be bondage uh, of the human spirit. And people will not find themselves uh, emancipated uh, spiritually by religion. They'll find themselves uh, trapped and in their prejudices and in their judgments and hatreds of those who are different than them. And today we note that it's a very religious holy day. Uh, Paul talks about, you know, the, the Sabbath days and the many moons and the holy days. They're, they're over. And until that, the celebration of today becomes a real part of your life in relationship, uh, which is emblematic of individuals rising up to new life, meaning they start to live by love and they start to live by faith. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. When, and when that resurrection takes place in your life and we choose to live by new life in him, like the song said, the first song that we sung, um, it's always gonna continue to be a holy day and it will just be celebrated on this day and then people go back to their old ways. So it's, it's the hope that we, me, you, uh, seek daily holy ways rather than annual holy days. And daily holy ways is not mean in your, uh, it means in your love. It means in your growth in love. More holy ways instead of annual holy days. And that's the way we kind of see it. And that's why we study the word together. So we left off last week. There's seven churches in the book of Revelation. And those seven churches are all being talked to and addressed by Jesus in the last book of the Bible. This is a heavy, meaty subject, but today we back off a little bit from the meat and we just talk about what those believers in the last church that Jesus addresses through John the Revelator, it's called the Church of Laodicea, and the Church of Laodicea thought they were rich, it's, Jesus tells them, and that they didn't have need of anything. He said, you think you're rich, you think you have need of nothing, when in actuality, Jesus clarifies from them, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind and you're naked. Those are actual words he uses to the believers in this church in uh, Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. It's a revelation that comes to John on the Isle of Patmos and Jesus says, tell the believers at this church in, in Laodicea, they think they're rich, they think they have need of nothing when in actuality they're wretched, miserable, poor, naked and blind. So, but then after chastising them, that's pretty, a, that's a harsh chastisement he gives them uh, advice and he says, listen, take and go and buy of precious gold from me. And we noted that that meant it doesn't cost you anything, but buy it with your heart. Buy white raiment, buy white clothing, which is emblematic of your righteousness, which comes through me. And buy eye salve, he says, which means so that will help you see clearly. And then he says, which we left off last week, a tender reminder. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. 
That's the word he uses. Now, uh, it's going to play into what we talk about today, but the word repent means to change your mind. The word repent does not mean to change your behavior. That's a religion speaking. Religion says change your behavior, and so people will say, you need to repent. But repent in the clearest Greek terms means change your mind about something. And that's always the meaning of it. And we'll discuss why that's important, an important differentiation from looking at someone and saying, you need to repent and meaning you better change your behavior when the scripture always means just change your mind about something. So uh, we covered all that. Now he adds our verse for the day. He says, behold, to the church at Laodicea, I stand at the door and knock. If any person will hear my voice, and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, means I'll eat with him, and he with me. So we're gonna, uh, and then we, uh, the last verses of the chapter come up and we've already covered those in a previous teaching. So we're just gonna cover the concepts and constructs of that verse where Jesus says to this church at Laodicea, who he says, you're miserable and you're poor, you don't even know it, you're wealthy apparently, and you have a lot they're going for you, but you don't know how blind and naked you really are. And he comes up and he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come and I will eat with him and he with me. So in that passage, we are presented with one of the most debatable things in Christian history, and it's regurgitated over and over and over through different discussions. Does God reach out to us and does he do the work, and that's what's known as a Calvinistic approach, or do we reach up to God and we do the work and then God responds? Course, re responds. Uh, it is, is it a one-way street, God, God, God does everything, or is it a, another, the opposite direction, is man doing everything, or is it a two-way street where God's doing and men are doing and in, somewhere in between we meet? Uh, and those debates, if you don't know this, are popular in theology and in studies of scripture and have been since way, way back. Uh, there, it goes further, is the sovereign God in heaven that we believe in manipulating everything? Is he causing everything? Is he allowing everything and stopping everything? Or is there a word called free will? Do individuals have the freedom to choose what they are going to do? There is a group that say there's no such thing as free will, that God has predestined everything to occur. It's according to his will. There's absolutely no freedom of choice, and God has orchestrated it, and we, therefore, are really just, in my opinion, automatons that respond to however we were created to be made, and then we die, and God has his way. We burn in hell forever is how they would say it. I never would. Or we go to heaven and live in joy forever, and that's a predestined way of seeing things. And the other side is, hey, is there freedom of choice? And does God know what those choices are going to be? Or even is he unaware of some of the choices. That's called open theism. What we have here is Jesus being very disturbed by the believers, the people who said they were Christians in Laodicea. And he doesn't like their attitudes and their actions. And he tells John, go and talk to them through this revelation and tell them this because the end of this age is about to happen. 
They, they were saying, we are rich. They're really poor. We have perfect vision. They were blind. We are clothed and arrayed in great clothing. You are naked. Uh, so, and Jesus says, you're so lukewarm. This is to that address. You are so lukewarm in the way you live. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That's verbiage that's very symbolic. It has nothing really to do with actuality in terms of him spitting. But he's saying you're just middle of the road. He says, I'd rather have you cold and dead to faith or alive and hot with faith. But this lukewarmness of one foot in and each straddling each side makes me sick. And we talked about how uh, lukewarm water does very little but breed disease. Cold water refreshes, hot water sterilizes. But the middle ground, lukewarm water doesn't have very much purpose except for maybe some cases of baking. So these were harsh words Jesus gives to these believers, harsh and pointed descriptions. But then in spite of all that, he says, you know, I want you to understand, I love you. And as many as I love, I chasten them. And uh, be zealous and change your mind, he tells them. Change the way you have been going. And really, if you think about it, that is at the core of life, really. It's not only at the core of uh, spiritual life. Change is at, changing our mind is at the core of everything we do. Uh, you think one thing, you're in one place, you might be at one place in terms of your political views, you might be at one place in your views of math or what you think of a certain person here or there, and we grow, we mature, and our minds change. Changing your mind is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Sometimes we herald and hold up people who have stayed the course and never changed their mind about something, but in actuality, the term repent, change your mind, is all through scripture, and it talks, tells us about doing that very thing. So, I think that's at the core of the faith, to change our mind about situations. And, to, and it's always, if it's in the Christian sense, you're going to change your mind from being less loving to being more loving. You're gonna change your mind from being less faithful to being more faithful and from, them, from being more faithful to being most faithful. It's a progression of mind change that's of the benefit. It's a positive, right? So in Romans 12, 2, Paul says this, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed, this is his talk, by the renewing of your mind. I point to my head, but this really isn't where the mind is. He says, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect and the will of God. So the word translated transformed, when he says, be ye transformed here, just a second. In Romans 12, be you transformed. In the Greek, the word is uh, where we get metamorphosis. It's metamorphoo, and it means to have a metamorphosis in your mind which is an amalgamation of the heart and the soul and the brain and your experiences and your attitudes and your education. Have a metamorphosis in your human mind where we don't know where that exists and transform that thing, change it. Experience a metamorphosis, he says, Paul says, by the renewing of your mind, the renewing. So that's an amazing fact that change in scripture 
is a changing of the mind. You notice it's not the changing of an action. You don't, religion says change your uh, blasphemous, change your uh, gossipy, change your adulterous, change your homosexual, change your alcoholic ways. Stop doing that and then God loves you. But the actual biblical message is change what you think about the thing and you will be on a better path toward a life with him. So don't ever let that word uh, throw you uh, as you read. You read it a lot in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You very rarely read it in, the, in Paul's letters because Paul knows it's all about the change of the heart first. So how do you metamorphosis? You renew your mind. The word for renewing here is anakiosis, and it means renovate. Renovate your mind and experience a metamorphosis, right? So most people understand if you're gonna renovate a room or a building, you go in and you deconstruct it all and you renovate and you build it back up. So this is what Paul is saying in Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed metamorphosis by the renewing, the, the uh, renovation of your mind and have that process get going in you. And so if you look at the uh, epistemology of that word, re, of course, means back again, or back or again, re, and then uh, newing is novus, which means new. So renew, make it new again. Take the thoughts of your mind and renew them over again. And I can't express how important that is to spiritual growth and maturation and to life itself. So the idea is we have concepts and notions that we bear around with us, okay? And I'm just gonna be bold. I'll just be bold here. Uh, the family I was raised in, uh, I had certain concepts of black people. And that's it, I had them. I knew what black people were all about because my dad told me. And so therefore, I had a mindset due to my experience, my, my soul, my mind, my will, emotion, and things I saw, things I heard, I had a mindset. And I had to renew my mind toward that concept in order to have a metamorphosis and see that race of people in a different way. Quite frankly, it wasn't just black people, it was, it was Asians, it was everybody, because that's the house I was raised in. And so when you're raised in an environment, that's what you get when you're raised in a certain religion, you'll come in with certain ideas that you have set, and scripture is saying, listen, renew those thoughts, make them new again. And, and you do that, and you metamorphosize your life because it all starts in the mind, all starts here. So we have these concepts, and when those concepts are off the mark of how God would be, scripture is constantly telling us the word to repent. But again, every time you read it, just say, change your mind, change your mind, change your mind. And every time you do, change your mind about this race or that race, you then will become more loving and you'll become more faithful because you're trusting God with that renewal of your mind. Experience a change metamorphosis by renewal of those ideas. So I used to be, for instance, under Marxist ideas, I used to think that might makes right. 
That was my general thought in my 30s. Might makes right. Whoever has bigger might has the right to make the rules. America has more firepower. It can make the rules about other countries. Might makes right is a Marxian idea. And it wasn't until I understood the call to renew my mind by the spirit that things begin to change and then I begin to live as though might does not make right. You see how the actions follow the mind changing first? So scripture does not tell us to change ourselves. It does not tell us to change ourselves. Um, our, our, our ways and our lives, but it tells us to renew our minds. This is such wise advice. If you can take somebody who has a mindset about any topic, educate them, teach them, help them see the error of that topic, their mind changes first, their actions will always follow, always. Uh, let me give you an example just to clarify. If you absolutely believe in your mind that apples uh, cause heart disease, apples cause heart disease, and you're sure of it, okay? So that being the case, you will never, ever, ever do what? Unless you want to die, eat an apple, right? So when you come in and your mind is changed and renewed about the real information about apples, they actually don't cause heart disease. They may even help prevent it somehow. Uh, if you learn those facts, guess what you'll start to do? You'll start to eat apples. And it's, so it all begins, all the warfare is in between, uh, I keep pointing here, but it's not there. It's, it's in the human mind, which science hasn't even been to tell us where it is. Speaking of Christ cleansing the concepts and ideas of his church, Listen to what scripture says in Ephesians. Paul said, he, this is Ephesians 5, 26, 27, that he might sanctify and cleanse his church with, how does Jesus sanctify and cleanse his church? With the washing of the word. With the washing of the word. That he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spots and wrinkles or any such things, but that it would be holy and without blemish. So we know that in order to sanctify and cleanse and get the mind of the body of Christ, so to speak, in harmony and without blemish and without wrinkles, it says here that Christ will wash it by the word. That's such an intriguing thing. So again, in order to change the church, to remove the spots and wrinkles and blemishes that are in a church, um, there would have to be a metamorphosis uh, by the renovation of the mind by the washing of the word. So what that means is everybody comes here and you have all kinds of ideas about certain things and guess what we do? We open the word up and we read it and we study it and we examine it openly. We look, try to look at all the different views and we say, wow. I never considered that. And we exit from here, and our mind has been partially renewed, partially metamorphosized. It's changed because new information comes in. From where? From man? Hopefully not. It's by the words that we're reading that the mind is renewed, washed. So when people say, you know, I'm trying to come out of Catholicism, I didn't like it. I'm trying to come out of Mormonism. I've come out of atheism. What do you suggest I do? Can you give me a book to read? 
And the thing you say is, look at, open up the Bible. Just open the Bible and read it. It will begin to renew your mind. It goes in and it washes out the stuff that you've collected in there and it will begin to do, dispose of it. So the word of God, and this is what scripture says, is both whether it's Jesus as the word made flesh or in print reading it, the word of God is spirit. It is living, right? So I'm gonna read you a scripture right here. By reading that to you, that is getting into you, whether you know it or not. It's spiritual uh, matter that is coming out of the word of God and into you, and it gets in your mind, and it starts to work through stuff that is not necessarily consistent with what God wants. Jesus said in John 6, 63, it is the spirit that makes alive. It's the spirit that makes alive. And the flesh profits nothing. Okay, so we have something right there. The flesh doesn't do us any good when it comes to making us alive in the living sense of, of spirit. The spirit makes alive and he says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So if we're bearing around concepts that lead to death, in us, and they're leading to a dead end called death, some sort of spiritual death, possibly physical death, we bear those. When we read the word, Jesus says, the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. So they come in and they overcome the dead words and minds are renewed, metamorphosis takes place and you move forward. It only makes sense then that the word of God, whether Jesus himself or in the spirit, is, when it is read, it is ingested spiritually to our hearts. That's why we sing the word of God, to get it into our hearts. That's why we talk from the word and we read scripture, to get it into our hearts so that it begins to wash away and erode those false notions. Um, and it has the capacity to remove and renew and rebuild those uh, things for the better. Jesus even said to his own apostles, listen to this in John 15, three. He said to them, this was before he suffered on the cross. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. You wanna know, wanna know a way to overcome uh, your flesh? Don't need to come to campus. Don't need to go to church. You really wanna know what uh, God has for you? Read the word. Read the word. Just take it in the morning and read it. You don't ever have to come to church again. I know people say, oh, no, yes, you, no, you don't. If you have the word, and if you don't have the written word, guess what? He speaks by his spirit, his words into you if you're searching for him to that question about what happens with the aborigines. His word is life, and he gives it. We happen to have his word in print. You read it, and it renews your mind. I get up every day early. Why? For the sole reason of reading the word. Why? Because it renews my corrupted mind, and that's why I do it. If it didn't have an effect, I would never do it, ever. But it has that effect, and I have, over the course of time, been able to experience a metamorphosis in my formerly corrupt soul by virtue of the Spirit and the words that are there. So once again, since his Spirit, his words, excuse me, are Spirit, then in the end, it is the Spirit that is cleansing us. And by and through the cleansing power of the, his word, through the shed blood of Christ, all of our needing to be renovated ideas and thoughts begin to erode. 
okay? Also, in John, Jesus, he has this thing called the intercessory prayer with his disciples. They all get together before he goes to the cross. And he prays for them. He says to the Father in their name, sanctify them through thy truth. Ready? Thy word is truth. So we have error, we have falsehoods that we bear around with us. You bring in his word, which is truth, which is spirit, which is life, and you bring those in. They work to start to erode. Uh, so, for instance, I believe uh, having sex with as many people as I possibly can in this life, it's in my mind and I think it's fine with God. He loves that. He loves freedom and openness. God just loves it. It's part of my mindset. And uh, nothing's gonna change my mind. Nothing on that. I've said it. And so I go about and I live that lifestyle. And, uh, but I pick up the word of God. One day I happen to be someplace and I pick it up and I start to read it. And the things in that say something contrary to what my mind has always believed and how I have always lived. And it tells me something spiritually that goes in and because that creates conflict, most people put that book down because it, it causes too much discomfort. And so we don't wanna hear it. And that's why most people don't go to churches where the churches teach out of the Bible. Because when you do, you are confronted constantly with yourself. And it becomes very disconcerting to somebody who spends their life trying to kind of protect the ideas that they have carried with them forever. So. Once you begin to read the word, it presents me with the living spirit through words. They enter my soul, and before I know it, I begin to think differently about my lifestyle choice. Uh, whatever that lifestyle is, and that, that's between me and God, and, but he's working in me. And then when I begin to think this way, when I begin to question it, the next thing that will change are my opinions. And then after my opinions change, guess what follows? My behaviors. And sometimes my behaviors will go back to the flesh and I'll justify it, that happens. But that's the process by which God works through people and it's not religion which has taken over and given us processes by which to overcome our flesh. And uh, uh, so, repenting in the best sense of the word is all, all, all about changing your mind. If there's something that you don't want to stop in your life, if there's something you don't, uh, if that you love, but you think it's wrong or something like that, talk to somebody who knows the word and just hear the views and hear what has to be said and see if your mind will open up to alternatives about that fact. So after telling them to change their minds in verse 19, Jesus says our verse for today, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. There's an intimation here that even though the believers in Laodicea had greatly erred in the side of whatever they were doing, who knows, uh, uh, they weren't loving, they weren't following Christ in his love, he says, there's hope for you. He says, I am standing here and I'm knocking. I'm knocking, I'm knocking. That's what he says. Uh, he was still offering them his grace. All they had to do was to hear his voice 
and open the door. Um, inviting them to come back, so to speak. And he's reminding them that he's calling to them, beckoning them to first change their mind and then listen for the knock and think about the direction you're headed. Think about the direction you're headed. Anybody who's been a parent can see when a kid starts to head a direction that's, you know, and you, and you correct them, typically as parents, in their actions. I think uh, better parenting is to change their minds before you try to change the actions. You explain and try to work with them in their minds. But, uh, and, and his answer is, listen, even though I pointed all these things out, I'm here and I'm knocking, I'm knocking. Uh, behold, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him, anyone, and will dine with him and he with me. So we're presented with a number of concepts here when it comes to theology and religion, which I brought up a minute ago and I got a little sidetracked. But what is the relationship that exists between God and his reaching and man receiving how is how is that scripturally understood does god call and only then we can respond to his call or are we do we have to do all the knocking and calling god where are you help me help me and he's just an absentee manager aloof to our existence until we plead enough and then he shows up and he opens the curtains and well maybe not yet you know that's it's presented in all these different ways there's so many ideas, it's hard to know the reality, so we have to look at what scripture says, because that's how we decide. Here Jesus pl plainly says, listen, to a church that had completely fallen apart, he says to them, listen, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. You've seen that picture probably, a lot of churches print it. Jesus is at a door and there's no handle there for him to take, but he's right at the door and, and his hand is up and you know, giving the imagery that he's knocking to say, hey, you know, I'm out here, open the door. And uh, we also know in the gospel that uh, we are told to knock, ask, seek, knock, and you will find. So we have both going on, you knock, he knocks. Everyone's knocking. John and I were talking the other day, if everyone's knocking, maybe we can't even hear each other because it's, each knock is simultaneously done and we don't know the other one's doing it. Which is it? So to me, if we are knocking and he is knocking, let's break this down. This phrase, I stand at the door and knock, is super common in the writings of uh, the Talmud in, among the Jews. Uh, in the Shur uh, Hasharim Rabbah 25.1, we read, listen to this quote. God said to the Israelites, my children, Open to me one door of changing your mind, even so wide as the eye of a needle, and I will open you doors which calves and horned cattle can pass through. So we can see from that that among the Jews, the relationship was, listen, if the human heart is willing to just let this much of him in, he will open up this much to us. That's what they would say. Um, it's a two-way street in that sense, where God says, open a door just enough of a changed mind, and I will throw doors wide open full of information. 
The irony behind this quote is it begins, however, with God suggesting open the door. So he's actually opening the first door. It's, it's never, you can never get around that. Another Hebrew writing, the Sohar Levit 8.32 says, if a man conceal his sin and does not open it before the holy king, although he asks mercy, yet the door of a changed mind shall not be opened to him. Okay, so this is all talking about the heart of the individual. But if he open it before holy blessed God, God spares him and mercy prevails over wrath. And when he laments, although all the doors were shut, yet shall they be open to him and his prayer shall be heard, end quote. So these are old rabbinic writings, uh, non-biblical, that were included in the Jews' uh, vol vol volumes of insights. For me, we have an understanding from them, the history of the Jews, and also from Scripture, that when Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, he's talking to a reprobate people, and yet what is he doing? He's knocking, begging for entrance. He's asking them, just listen, hear, open my, open the door. Uh, I don't think when he's knocking, uh, I think it represents in scripture the things that he will do in our lives to get us to, to reach out to him, to recognize his voice or hand in our lives. Circumstances, trials, mercies, blessings, reproofs, uh, words from other people. I think all of these could be considered his knocking. I think that's that through life circumstances, we, uh, I mean, Isaiah says that very nature, when you step outside your front door on a clear morning and you look at the majestic Wasatch front and you look at the sun coming over it and you see the stars fading, that that is God knocking. It's giving us a witness. I'm here. And that, and Romans says, we'll be without excuse because of all these uh, knocks. But notice Jesus then says, if any man hears my voice. So he begins, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my knock, that's not what he says. He says, if anyone hears my voice, right? So it's an intriguing line because he says nothing of calling out. He says nothing of speaking at that door. He, he doesn't say that. All he says is, I stand there and knock, and if you hear my voice in that knock. So I would think that it's all the things that come to us throughout our life that's the knocking, the trials, the good things, the mercies, the, the difficulties, nature, etc. Those are his knocking. And if you hear his voice in that, if any man hear my voice, and then he adds, and opens the door. So we have a lot of free will going on here. We have an awful lot of free will. And we have our participation in the salvific moment. We have our participation in knowing God that he is not a despot that sits up there and says, you'll know me, you'll know me, you'll know me, and you won't, and you won't, and you won't, which is the way the Calvinist would say it. But he says, listen, I'm knocking. If you hear my voice and the knocks of your life and you open the door, I'll come in. And we have a living example from the book of Revelation telling us how to have relationship with God. It's right there. He will do it, but it's predicated on our desire. It's just like the vampire movies uh, you know, of, of today, which you may or may not know, but you have to invite the vampire in. The vampire comes to the door, but the vampire stops. You have to invite the vampire in. And the same thing is being said many, many, many years before by Jesus. I'm knocking, I'm calling, but 
you got to open that door, right? So apparently we respond because we have heard his voice in the messages of our life. We have heard or learned from somebody something. We have seen something. Something is touching us. And we say, is that you, God? And then we say, I think that that's you. I'm being called. And then we take the effort to open the door. And the Jews said, even the space of an eye of a needle, you do that, he'll come running through with, with horns wide. If they hear him and answer the door, he says he will come in and he'll eat with them and them with him. Uh, I'm fairly convinced that all who have the capacity, who have the capacity to hear his voice in the knocking of their lives, that not many, looking uh, quantitatively over the course of human history, respond. That seems to be the case. Um, and then those who actually open the door, according to Jesus, straight as the gate narrows the way, few be there that find it, actually open that. It might be just the human will, our fear that God's gonna punish us, our fear that his ways are gonna be inferior to our ways, our desires to cling to our concepts and not change our minds, whatever it is, it seems like most will not either hear his voice in the knocking or open up the door and let him in. Uh, so then he ends that passage with, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. And he ends that message to that church at Laodicea with the same words he gives to all other six churches. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We've covered those last two verses in previous uh, message, so we're not gonna cover them again. We're going to now move on to Revelation chapter four. I'm gonna read it. It's 11 verses long. We're gonna cover the first verse briefly and then wrap it up. But it's gonna be important for you to hear the words that are used in this fourth chapter of Revelation and decide what the heck is going on. And we're gonna use scripture to help explain that in the weeks to come. So we read in Revelation chapter four, verse one, that John writes, and after this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me which said, come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald, and round about the throne were four and 20 seats, and upon the seats I saw four and 20 elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they all had head on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of burning, fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God, 
And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto a crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. The first beast was like a lion and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were all full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. That's the text of chapter 4. So it appears to be here in chapter 4, we begin to embark on the visions. Now, the others were a vision, but now we start to get in visions that are difficult to understand in the book of Revelation. And specifically, we're introduced to heavenly symbols and creations or creatures, or people, or angels, or period of times, or kingdoms, we don't know yet. And they have a special designation for believers in the seven churches. The vision he's seen, remember, Revelation chapter 1, is to the seven churches. It's for them to understand what Jesus is trying to tell them. So, with regard to the nature of these visions and the state of mind of John, there has been a lot written by scholars and commentators over the years some believe John is describing something that's representational. For instance, the animals represent something with the eyes in the front and the eyes in the back and uh, the wings and all this is representational. It's not meant to be taken literally. If that's the case, we have to try to figure out what they represent and that opens it up to its own difficulty. Others believe that those animals or what were like animals are actual. They should be taken literally and so when we read that, there is actually creatures around the throne of God that have the wings and have the eyes and have the face like a man and, a, and, and fly like an eagle and all those things. And there's a growing number of people who think John inadvertently took some magic mushrooms on the Isle of Patmos and uh, we are getting the benefit of what he saw. And I'm not kidding you. There are people who are like saying there's no way. This, this guy was hallucinating. And we just, he just wrote it all down and really believed he was seeing the things that he saw. I suppose it all depends on your, your worldview of Scripture, how serious you are about where it came from, and you do a study of things. Revelation is one of the books in Scripture that it's a little bit topsy-turvy in terms of should it be in here or not. I personally now believe it should, but I didn't uh, think so originally. Martin Luther did not necessarily think it should either uh, because it is so difficult to understand. And, and this is one of the reasons why. But here's the things we do know. According to the epistle, at least, or the revelation, John had a devout mind at the time, and he claims the visions were from God. That's one thing. The representations that he sees beginning now are all supernatural. So you just take that word super and natural. It's beyond the, the world we live in. They're extra natural. And uh, they were disclosed to him in a means that were not natural. 
John did not with the rods and cones of his physical eyes see the angels or see the creatures. He saw it when he was caught up in the spirit and that has to be remembered. He's trying to describe something in another dimension, something we can't see with our natural eyes and he's putting it in written form and we get it today and read it and we're trying to make sense of it and it's not easy. Uh, third, the things he saw had an aspect of reality. And, and so we see that, for instance, in his explanation of the throne of God was like unto emeralds and jasper. And the animal had a face like unto a man. And the, the beast was like unto a lion and all these different things. It's always like, a simile. It's, it's sort of like, it's similar to one of these things. But it, he didn't say, and I saw around the throne of God an eagle. I saw around the throne of God a lion and a calf and a man. That's not what he says. He says that these things were like unto those things. So that helps us see maybe the literal application needs to just be gently approached. We also know John does not attempt to ever tell us what these things are. You notice that? We read it and we, of course, John wouldn't know what they were. We do. You know, he was involved in it. He didn't know, so he doesn't tell us. But 2,000 years later, we can read it, and we know. And that's part of the problem with the book is that we assign knowledge. Uh, but John doesn't appear either. He didn't know what they meant, and he was just recording what he saw, or he had some kind of instruction that's not there that just said, don't even explain what these things mean. Because he doesn't say. He just tells us what they look like, like unto, and kind of what they do and what is happening before his eyes. But he doesn't say why there were four and what those uh, uh, creatures uh, meant or the 24 elders and, and all that. We might liken John in his experience um, to maybe a child who's never read a book about the sea or under the sea or taught or been under the sea who was taken and put in a submarine to a place where there's coral and fish and sea life and doesn't understand what anything is. And then he gets out and he's told to write about it. And he says, well, there was, there was these things that had eyes like my cat and things that had mouths like my dog. And they were called fish, but he didn't know that. It's an experience he seems to be taken into heaven and he's trying to describe it. Um, nevertheless, the things that John saw were based in being real to him. Otherwise, what's the purpose in writing about them? If they didn't have a reality to them, why write them as Jesus commands John when he gives him the revelation and tell him to take it and share it with the seven churches? So they had to have some purpose, some basis in reality for him to write about them and share and we know from this chapter that everything he's seen is telling him about what's gonna happen in the future. We know that, that's what he says. This is all for things that are going to happen. So that's why he is actually getting this vision. Um, the, the vision opens up with John experiencing what theologians call a theophany. In the Old Testament, God will appear and scholars will try to differentiate between a Christophany, which is Christ appearing pre-incarnate, and God appearing, which is Theos appearing, uh, Christ or God. And I wonder about Christophanies altogether when they will say that was Christ before he was born. I don't know about that, but Theophanies are simply manifestations of God to man. And this is what uh, 
Jesus says in John, no man has seen God at any time. So it's not because Revelation says that John says, I saw one. Do you know that? Notice that he says, I saw one. He doesn't say, I saw God. He just says, I saw one sitting on a throne. And uh, Jesus says, no man has seen any God, any God at any time. But we know John was seen through vision. He was caught up into another uh, dimension. So he wasn't seeing it with his natural eyes. And so there isn't a conflict between Jesus saying, no man has seen God at any time, and John suddenly being caught up and seeing God. Uh, we assume it's God, pretty sure it's God, but it doesn't, John doesn't say, and I saw God. He simply says, I saw one. He might cover who that is a little bit later. Uh, he's invited, he's actually invited to look into heaven, to go up, look in, and to have a view of the throne of God, uh, presumably, and the worship that is being done at that time when he gets a peek into heaven. A door is opened so that he could see beyond. Now, whether what he saw is constantly going on, some people suggest that those animals are saying, holy, 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 uh, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, day and night without ceasing, that that's gone on forever and ever, and that's all they do. Um, it might have just been for that period, it might have been just for John to see about what's going to happen in the future, but that is what was going on. All we know is this is what he witnessed. The throne of God, or a throne of one. And it was a glorious throne, assuming it was God. Uh, him who sits on the throne, he witnessed, whoever that one was. There were worshipers there. There were lightnings and thunderings, thunders roar around the throne. There was a rainbow that encompassed the throne and there were songs of the worshipers and then there were also the animal creatures that he says were like unto. So those are the things I think it's important for us because we're in our study of Revelation, you're gonna have to bear with me while I read these two, is for us to now start borrowing from the Old Testament. You see, everything in the, new, in, in the book of Revelation is kind of fulfilling and talking about things that had been discussed and seen in the Old Testament. I'm gonna read from two sets of passages and we'll wrap it up for today. But this is to get us going and taking passages from the Old and seeing how they correlate to what John is seeing about the end of what's coming, all right? So the first one is in Isaiah and the second's in Ezekiel. I just read to you what John says he saw in his revelation. This is Isaiah's vision that he sees in Isaiah chapter six. In the year that King Uzzah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. He says he saw the Lord, that's Yahweh, that would be God. Uh, but again, we have to take that in context of scripture. He saw in vision, right? Above it stood seraphims, each one had six wings, the twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You seen similarities already between what John sees in the book of Revelation all the way back to what Isaiah saw? And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have, see the, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, 
which he had taken with tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. That's Isaiah having a, a vision of heaven and him repeating similar things that John says he saw. We'll talk about the similarities next week and in the weeks to come. You're going to notice something that Isaiah, when he saw that vision, he uh, said, I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in a, amongst a people with unclean lips, and I am witnessing something that's going to destroy me. A seraphim comes and puts a live coal taken from the altar on his mouth and says, you have been cleansed by this hot coal, and your iniquity shall be remembered no more. And that was according to Old Testament sanctification law. By purging with fire, his iniquity would be put away. And, but with John, we don't have that. John doesn't say that he was terrified. Why? Because in the interim between Isaiah and John, we have Christ coming and atoning for the sin of the world. Therefore, when John, who was a believer and follower of Christ, was caught up into heaven, he had no response of, oh, I'm a man of unclean lips. He just reports what he saw. I think that's an interesting insight. Finally, the Ezekiel vision is a bit longer. It's found in the first chapter of that book. Let me read it to you. Ezekiel says, And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it, and out of the midst thereof, as the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. And everyone had four faces, and everyone had four wings, and their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like the color of burnished brass, and they had the hands of a man under their wings on all four sides, and they four had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another, and they turned not when they went. They went every one straight forward, and for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man, the face of a lion. On the right side, they had four the face of an ox. On the left side, they four also had the face of an eagle. So we have a lot of similarities going on there. Thus were their faces, and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined one to another, and two covered their bodies. And they went, every one straight forward, whether the spirit was to go, they went, and they turned not where they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, and, their, and like the appearance of lamps. It went up and down among the living creatures, and the fire was bright. And out of the fire went four lightnings, and the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. So we have lightning mentioned here. John mentions lightning coming out of the throne. Now as I beheld the living creatures, behold, one wheel upon the earth by the living creatures with his four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their work was like unto the color of a barrel, B-E-R-Y-L, and they had four and one likeness, and their appearance and their work was as it were a wheel in the midst, middle of a wheel. And when they went, they went upon their four sides, and they turned not when they went. 
and he goes on and he describes and he talks about the, the creatures being terrible and the firmament reaching over their heads, on and on and on. The likenesses to John's vision stop at about that point. So we now, we haven't done this yet in our study, we now are going to revelate, we're going to the book, the Old Testament, and we're saying, all right, John is talking in terms of things we don't understand. Have these things been talked about before? Oh, they have. Where? In the Old Testament. Let's see what it says, and then we're going to start to add up and see if we can interpret the meaning of John through the Old Testament message. We'll do a comparison of these passages with each other as time goes on, but it seems that both Isaiah and Ezekiel uh, solemnly uh, inaugurated the call on their life through a vision. Both Isaiah and Ezekiel had a vision about the heavens. Now we see John He's having a vision about the heavens. Next week, verse one says, and after this I looked and behold, a door was opened in the heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show you the things that you, which must happen hereafter. Notice one thing before we wrap up, besides my sweating. Uh, and that is Jesus ends his message to the seventh church Laodicea by saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who hears my voice and opens the door. You hear those, those key words? Well, the first verse of chapter four says, and after I received this vision, behold, a door. So now suddenly John is, is presented with a door, opened into heaven, and the first voice, so now we have a voice that he hears, that I heard where it was like a trumpet talking to me, which said, come up hither and I'll show you things which will be hereafter. So we have a lot of those things Jesus said to the church of Laodicea. I'm knocking. If you hear my voice, open the door. John actually experiences in the very first verse of chapter four. Questions or comments? Adam Guyman, first one on the list. My name is Adam Guyman, and a couple things I noticed. One, uh, you mentioned about uh, uh, the knocking, and uh, I don't really believe that's like like a physical knocking, but I would almost have to say that that's almost like when you, uh, you know, when, when you see something that you've, found that you know when you find the truth like when you said that you had uh one day stopped your car because you're driving and you said that because you're listening to that uh that uh you know pastor that or that person that was talking on the radio mm -hmm. and you you know that right there was a knock. Was like a knock where you you recognize something different. You, right. You saw the truth, and the thing is, is when you see the truth, you know. And then like the part where you talked about voice, uh, you know, when you see the truth, and let's say it's something you don't like or you do like or you're just not sure of, uh, and you get that feeling like you just maybe you might get a feeling that you're scared about something, and it's a way of 
uh, you know, it may not be a physical voice like you and I are talking to each other and we can hear it, but we hear it in a different way and it all comes down to truth itself. Absolutely. Good point, Adam. Thank you very much. Anybody else? Anyone want to sing? Dance? Go ahead, Gaylene. Want to ask a question, Sean? Where do you think our where do you think our spirit really is? Up here or all through the body? Our spirit or our mind? Our spirit. You talk about your mind and the head. Yeah. Where do you think our spirit is? I don't know. Looking out in your eyes? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's in us. Also, when you talk about talking about the word, I believe that uh, opening up the Bible and reading the Bible. And I read daily bread, daily bread books, and I read Joyce Meyer's 386 little quotes she puts in the Bible, and I, that's how I get my answer, and I feel the Lord takes me there to do that. All right. Very good. Excellent, Gaylene. That it? All right. Oh, wait. Far back corner. Um, hey, there's there's three Johns in the Bible. Is there all the same John the Baptist? Are they all the Baptist? No, they're not. No, John the Baptist is one John, then John yeah, the Beloved yeah. and John the Revelator are the same John. Okay. So there's three of them. No, there's two. John the two. Beloved and John oh, okay. the Revelator are the same guy. John oh. the Baptist was a different man. All Good right. question. All right, let's pray. Lord, this is uh, heavy stuff, and we just thank you that we have your word. We just pray that your spirit will be with us. And we pour out our hearts to you on behalf of each other, which we're commanded to do in scripture and to pray for each other. And, and we just pray that your blessings will be upon all who are struggling and seeking and having difficulty in life in one way or another. Those who are struggling with their faith, those who are struggling with their lives, their relationships with spouses or family or children or parents, those who are struggling with neighbors and divisions and fights, and those who are having a difficult time making ends meet here in this world, their, their work or their employment or their money. And of course, there's health, and we always are cognizant of that because it's such a task. We pray for our sister, always Heidi. We pray you will be with her and strengthen her through this uh, battle with her health and that you will encourage her and Rex and Ty and her parents and everybody involved and let her light continue to shine as it always has. And we pray that you'll bless Liz and the infection that's in uh, the, the surgery she's had and that infection will not return as it has so many times on her back. And we pray for people whose ailments aren't listed here who we don't know. And uh, we pray that you'll encourage all of us to walk in new life just as you rose from the grave and walked in a newness of life, we'll do the same through you and by your spirit. Help us to be Christians to our neighbors and not through dogma and not through accusations, but through love and being people of faith. So be with us now, those who are searching, those who are struggling, those who need help. Use us, Lord, to be Jesus to our neighbors. And we pray for this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Sacrifice and love.